bit of space here, so strap in for the ride. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. That's where we are. We've been doing a series. We started taking one beatitude a week, and now we're just continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. So today we find ourselves right here in these verses, and here's what we read there. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of God. Well, if you were with us last week, you know the passage just before it speaks to the issue of murder. And Jesus said, you've heard that it was said a long time ago, don't commit murder, but I tell you that if you have anger inside of your heart, then that is also just as sinful as murder. And this week, don't commit adultery, but Jesus says the real problem is in the heart again, and he likens lust to adultery. Well, what is lust? Well, lust could be defined as an excessive or disordered desire. Let me get this thing going again. For anything more generally, but physical pleasure more specifically. So what is lust? A disordered desire, an excessive desire. Its close cousin is gluttony, and if gluttony says, my stomach is my God, lust says, pleasure is my God, physical pleasure is my God, and my own pleasure is the chief objective. If you were here with us when we did our series on the seven deadly sins, there's a lot of carryover from that message as well, so if you're a good note taker and flip back, you might say, he's saying a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, it's true. I am. Because... That is a message that dealt head-on with lust. And let's just do this in kind of first fashion, uh, first, second, third, fourth, just some from statements to kind of get to the heart of this. First, physical intimacy and the desire for it is a gift from God. Pleasure is something that he's given us. Physical intimacy is one of the most beautiful places that can be experienced. From the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 in creation, you know, after God had fashioned uh, man and man, uh, Adam named all the creatures, there was nothing complimentary to him. And so God said, I'm going to create woman from man, Isha from Ish in the Hebrew. And when Eve is first presented to Adam, Adam, she's clearly different than all of the animals, and at least my Hebrew professor, who was a bit of an expert, said that the idiomatic way it comes across in the Hebrew when he first sees Eve is, wow, (laughs) because she was looking good to him, especially relative to all the animals that he'd been naming, and something stirred in him, a desire, this is the right fit, this is Good. There's a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that is all about passion and pleasure and pursuit. 
However, because there's so much baggage associated with it, this is a challenging thing to grasp for people who've grown up with a commitment to this. Maybe the corresponding view of, or virtue of chastity, or certainly our culture, which because we have so much negative baggage associated with it, we can't understand what it is in its good context. In the screw tape letters, some of you know C.S. Lewis wrote a book kind of imagining the spiritual realm with a demon assigned to a particular individual, and a senior demon is writing to the junior demon, and they're receiving the letters, and the senior demon basically says, you know, we've tried to manufacture pleasure, you know, in hell. We just can't do it. We're not good at it because God is great. He's the best. So here's what we can do. All we can do is take what he has said is good and twist it and, and get people to use it in the wrong way at the wrong time. That's the best that we can do. Pleasure is a gift from God. Second, like everything else, the desire was distorted when sin entered the world. Genesis 1 and 2, wow, Genesis 3, uh-oh. Because what happens automatically when sin enters the world, the first conflict is between husband and wife. And now all of a sudden the beauty of the one flesh experience is just riddled with weeds like the rest of creation. The desire is good. But because of sin, the desire is distorted. So there's this struggle to express it and experience it. Sometimes in the wrong way at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. The beauty and the pleasure of expressing those desires in a physical union is reserved, according to Genesis 1 and 2, for marriage. And that's reinforced by Jesus in Matthew 19. There he says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is... The creator's design at creation because he understands there's beauty and safety within the framework of marriage. That's where sacrificial, enduring, committed, celebratory love can grow and be nurtured best. Now, lust, as we know, is not limited to this particular act of a physical union because like all the other sins, lust is not only a physical problem. Jesus makes that clear in verses 27 to 28. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the problem is more than skin deep. And anything we do to realign that desire to its appropriate place will build in safeguards that are comprehensive and address heart issues as well. Lust leads to a physical expression, but it begins in our hearts in our minds, and here Jesus points out that lust begins very privately. It's you, your mind, your thoughts, your imagination, and nobody has to know. You know, when you see something like don't commit murder, you can say, well, I wouldn't do that. And Jesus says, well, do you have an anger problem? Don't commit adultery. Well, I wouldn't do that. Do you have a lust problem? Lust, as I've called it before, is like a reservation for a party of one at a restaurant of your desire. And that is part of its 
distortion. And it's a lure because those desires get reduced simply to personal gratification. And in your mind, there are no consequences. Gratification without any real sacrifice or commitment. And that is why in God's economy, the most intimate union is reserved for marriage. Third, the consequences of that distortion are physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual. This kind of union is not only physical. Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? There's a mystical union you have with Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. There's an interplay here even in Paul's theology between spirit and flesh. The two relate to each other. And in Paul's day and in ours, that reality is ignored or dismissed. It's pretty easy to identify physical consequences to disordered sexual desire, for example, STDs, rape, abuse, unplanned pregnancy. But of course, there are more than just physical consequences. The one flesh union that the Bible gives us a picture of, Genesis, Matthew, other places, it's multidimensional. Two becoming one. And that act involves more than just biology. There's an emotional connection. You're sharing who you are on the most intimate level and literally fully exposed before someone else. You know, when, when, when sin entered, shame entered into the world as well. You're embarrassed. You know, you're even just embarrassed about your body, but embarrassed to be exposed on that kind of level too. There's a mental aspect. Your mind is recording the event. Endorphins are at work. Memories are being made that will last a lifetime. Ben Carson, world-renowned neurologist, right? I heard him speak one time about the brain, the human brain, and he says, your brain records everything. You will never forget. It's, on some level, it's affecting you and your subconscious. He claims, because your mind is amazing and it records everything. So it does make a difference. What you see, what you hear, what you expose yourself to, it is shaping you in some way. There's a spiritual aspect, the deepest part of your being uniting with another, and that's its design. So used properly, it's beautiful. Used wrongly, it becomes a WMD, a weapon of mass destruction to yourself and to others who are hit by the shrapnel. The more it's used incorrectly, the more deadened a person becomes to its actual good. This is like gluttony. We mentioned that earlier. Or the opposite of gluttony, bulimia, anorexia, whatever it may be. We lose pleasure in food when we misuse it. <laughs> food was designed to be pleasurable. You don't have to invite me. I know I'm an American. Ask me one time. And I'm there. You drop off a meal at my house. I don't care how much is in the pantry. I'll eat it. Invite me over. I mean, that's how forward I am. I will come to your house and eat your food gladly. I love food. I probably need to work on the gluttony side. I mean, I can cover it up with a thin frame. But there can be an insatiable desire 
a misuse of it. It is designed to be used in the right way at the right time, at the right amount. It's like anything else. Outside of its proper context, it not only becomes harmful, but it reduces our capacity to enjoy it when used properly. Fourth, our culture, like many others, redefines its purpose. Uh, the, the purpose of this kind of physical intimacy. Uh, we've seen its purpose. It, it's, it's a one flesh expression, pleasurable in the context of marriage, but that's not the majority report culturally. Our, our culture, I'm speaking about American culture, tends to distort it in several ways. Its purpose and value can be exaggerated on the one hand, like it's the most important pursuit. This is what you're living for. This is what you need to get and much to be desired and sought after whenever and however with whomever. It can become a chief goal without consideration for the other. And it's also at the same time greatly minimized. It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, everybody does that. Really. It's just like a, com it's like a commodity, like money. We're just exchanging a good. So what? And that approach ignores or denies the ways that such intimacy is a big deal. Now, sometimes in this arena, it can just be a matter of pursuit of conquest and possession. And people are dehumanized. And that's where abuse runs rampant. It can become a source of identity for you or validation. You feel like you're an object of somebody's affection because you ache so hard to be validated as a person. You compromise because it temporarily makes you feel like somebody cares. And the intimacy craved is satisfied, maybe for a second, but then like the wind, it's gone. Fifth, there's seven things, so you know how far along we're, get, we're getting. And they're all about the same. Fifth, followers of Jesus should care about purity. And there's this kind of purity culture language out there that disparages the intent of it, which is to be, have a clear conscience before God, to use things properly. And by purity, I mean what the Desert Fathers called chastity, the pure and positive view of love which seeks to honor God with our bodies in all we do. If you ever wonder what God's will is, I know some of you wonder, is it God's will for me to Sometimes God tells us straightforward. The young church in Thessalonians told, it is God's will. Here it is. You want to know what God's will is? It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, made like Christ, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, and that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. It's interesting how it's outward faced too. For God did not call us to be impure, to, to, but to live a holy life. So purity matters. And you can see that if lust has self as its object, a party of one, what's there in it for me? The call to purity has others as its concern. Am I doing what is honorable to God? What about the community around me? Am I doing what's honorable to my brother or to my sister? Am I taking advantage of someone for my own gain or pleasure? In the area of modesty, 
I, I, you know, I know it's an area of, of challenge as well, but you might ask the question, am I making others as comfortable as possible? That's an others-oriented sort of look at what's motivating and driving us. Kevin Young was reflecting on the issue of lust. He says, oftentimes with combating lust, we think of a list of to-dos and to-avoids. But if we are to go deeper, the questions we need to consider might look different. Chastity's fundamental question is not, how far should I go on a date without crossing some invisible line of sin? But rather, how can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversations, and my behavior make me a person who is best prepared to give and receive love in relationship with others? What if you just sat there and chewed on that? For a little while. I don't think there are probably many teenagers thinking on this level. They're an easy target, but what about you? I mean, this, this question doesn't stop presenting itself. When Jesus is talking to the audience, it's probably not a youth group experience. He's gathered adults together, and teens and others are there listening, and he says, what about you? Are you still asking these kinds of questions? Lust says, love yourself. That's the focus of its disordered desire. Christ says what? How does he sum up the entire Bible? Love yourself with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God and love others. That's it. That's, that's oriented even outside yourself. Love God and love others. And if you're wondering, well, what about me? The wonder of scripture is like, those things get taken care of when you focus on this. You start focusing on yourself and loving yourself, you'll lose those others. You, you aim for the one, you get the other. You aim for this, you don't get that. I wish it were different sometimes because it's a lot easier just to focus on me. All desires can be rightly aligned if we take that grid seriously. But of course, you ought to consider, you know, what boundaries need to be in place? Where and when are you tempted? What thoughts need to be redirected? What, what thoughts need to be cherished? The Bible talks about putting off things, avoiding the, and putting on things. Think about what's lovely and good and noble. It's, it's both. You, 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 you say no to something, you've got to replace it with a good thing. How do you become the master of these desires rather than them mastering you? And that's, that's really what Paul was talking about, too. Learn to control your body. Well, those of us trying to diet and lift weight, you know what I'm talking about. You can be the master of these things. And when you do, there's a flourishing that can't come otherwise. Sixth, followers of Jesus need to take, all right, here we go, sin and forgiveness seriously. Now, the sin part is Jesus gives a pretty extravagant illustration here. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, gouge it out. Cut it off. And there was a church father, it, 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 most historical accounts validate this, called Origen, who took this very seriously. I mean, as seriously as you can take this, he took it. Gouging and cutting, offending members. And do you think he was done with the problem after that? No, because sin's in the heart. Lust is in the heart. 
He was just in a lot of pain and probably regret on the back end. But his heart still dealt with lust. But Je So Jesus is saying, take it seriously. This is very strong language to say, don't treat it lightly. But where we fail, either in the execution of this, we want to be pure, or in the intention level, Christ's sacrifice and love are sufficient to cover us. There is no sin for which Christ did not die when you receive and trust in him. There's a lot of shame involved with this topic. Can you, only, can you imagine if we took a moment, each of us, to go up here and there was a projector that projected our sins of this nature onto the screen, either things we've done or things that we've thought? You'd be absolutely horrified. Some of you might be tempted to stick around and see what others have done. But once it's your turn to get up here, you'd sure hope nobody else is around. I'm guessing there's not a single person who would say, I'll come up and be exposed publicly in that kind of way. And Jesus says that what he did on the cross was he bore all those sins that you've kept private and you want nobody else to know about. The very worst one you can think of. The, the sixth commandment, don't commit murder. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Can you think of a biblical figure who did that? Who was it? David. And he's described as a man after God's own heart which is a fascinating concept. It's not a license to sin. There's all kinds of consequences, but it appears to me David, on the front end, maybe didn't calculate all that, but when he did it, his heart was broken. And in repentance, he said, God, forgive me. Forgive me. And Christ on the cross sealed that forgiveness once for all. You are not beyond the reach of God's grace and forgiveness. Unless you refuse to accept it. Unless you've refused to receive it. That's it. The qualification for entering God's kingdom, you need to be more righteous than the Pharisees. That Jesus already said that. Impossible, right? There's only one who was completely righteous. He's the one speaking these words. And he's the one who knows your heart. So stop hiding. Stop pretending. Be honest before God. And receive the forgiveness that can only come from him. Period. It cannot come from any other source. No matter how hard you try, only Jesus can offer the perfect sacrifice. He was tempted in every way, but without sin. You might be a follower of Jesus, and Satan does a great job of reminding you again and again and again of things that maybe you've done in the past or things that you've thought about and say, you're disqualified. You've got to tell, open up your Bible and say, Satan, go to hell. Sorry for the language. But you don't belong here because Jesus has sacrificed himself for me. And that doesn't mean you minimize the battle with sin. Jesus is trying to show you how significant it is. Get in the fight. Mortification is not something we talk about very much in terms of theology, but it means put sin to death. And it's not a passive idea. Not many battles are won, are won by just not showing up to the battlefield. So you're in a battle. But Christ is your warrior, and he has gone ahead of you, and he has paid the full price. So much shame in this arena, but hear this, child of God, you're forgiven. 
Don't you think in John 8, when that woman who committed adultery, don't you think she experienced the freedom that came when Jesus came along and who knows what he was writing in the sand and he looks up and all of her accusers who were about ready to stone her to death are gone. Where are they? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Nobody could do that. We've got lust in our hearts. And he says to her, you're forgiven. Well, go and sin no more. It's not you're forgiven. Go do whatever you want. And I suggest more adultery. No. But even if she did return to that, when she throws herself upon the mercy of God in Jesus, she's guiltless. Do you believe that? I wonder. Seventh. And finally, fulfilling any desire, and I don't care what the desire is, if you feel like it's been fulfilled, it will never fully satisfy. It's just temporary. Even if you have a healthy, robust, crazy, awesome marriage, no marriage can constantly grant what you desire and long for. Even if it's a healthy desire. It's a relationship of shadow and substance. That desire is the shadow pointing to something more substantive, a mere taste of something more enduring and more beautiful. Physical pleasure, a deep connection with another person, and everything else that comes with it. It's amazing. But it will never satisfy what you really want. It cannot be sustained because at some point, death itself catches up to us. What we long for is connection on the deepest level. Jesus dealt with the seventh commandment here. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Then he connects that to the heart. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully is guilty. A good desire has been twisted. But how ultimately can it be satisfied then? And Jesus here is once again demonstrating that he himself is the fulfillment of the law. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, the lust of your heart points you to a desire that can only be truly fulfilled in me. You're hungry for something, and I'm the bread of life. You're thirsty for something, I'm the living water. You want a deep connection with someone, and I'm the shaper and the lover of your soul, who you're de designed to be in deep connection with. You want to obey the laws of God this morning? Great! They point to me, and I alone have fulfilled them. So any desire you have at the end of the day is pointing to the substance behind it, to the giver of all good gifts. Pleasure is a good gift. It comes from the Father of heavenly lights above. Back in 1875, this is a song that we sing sometimes. I think this sums it up. Clara Williams wrote this. She says, all my life long, I'd panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within, feeding on the filth around me till my strength was almost gone, longed my soul for something better, only still to hunger on. Poor I was and sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. Well of water, 
ever springing, bread of life, so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth, my Redeemer is to me. Hallelujah! He has found me, the one my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies all my longings. Through his life, I now am saved. That's the gospel. And Jesus, again and again in the Sermon on the Mount, is going to bring us to the precipice. We look over and we say, what hope is there? He says, look up and look at me. I'm right before you. I am the hope. Even for those of you who feel the greatest shame today. And I hope you find rest in that. Father God, would you come and remind us through your Holy Spirit that Christ is the only one who can truly satisfy and we deal with an issue like lust. It's a sensitive topic. It's a difficult topic. Well, largely because we have misused it. But it's something redemptively beautiful that you are offering to us in the scriptures today. A chance for a new star. A chance to be honest. And to find in that honesty a God who says, I forgive you. Now let's reshape your desires. Let's fight together a battle that's worth fighting. Thank you for being the one our souls have craved. And show us, Jesus, how you truly satisfy our longings. Thank you that through your life we are saved. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.